This episode is sponsored by Arc IT, and you'll find out more about them later on in the episode. Hi there, I'm Evan Troxell. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, I have a conversation with Dr. Upali Nanda. Upali heads up cutting-edge projects as principal and director of research at HKS Architects. She also serves as the executive director of the Nonprofit Center for Advanced Design Research and Education and teaches as an associate professor of practice at the Tubman School of Architecture and Urban Planning at the University of Michigan. And as if her schedule wasn't full enough, she also serves on the board of directors of the Academy of Neuroscience for Architecture. Dr. Nanda is reimagining the role of the architect, using neuroscience and other powerful data collection techniques to help understand the impact design has and to build better buildings. I think we all know that design today is often top-down and that architects move on to new projects before the doors of the current project open, this whole idea of feeding the machine of the business of architecture. And Upali believes that the role of architecture is to create living systems that respond to inhabitants' changing needs. And so therefore, architects actually should stay involved during occupancy to have true agency and deliver better value. The main topics that we discuss in this episode are all around that and the intersection of data, neuroscience, technology, IRL space. IRL space? What's that? Well, you're going to have to listen to the episode to find out. So without further ado, I bring to you my conversation with Dr. Upali Nanda. Upali, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited about this this conversation that we're about to have. And uh, again, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. So I think the first time that I was oh, became aware of you was at the Tech Plus conference that was in Los Angeles a little more than a year ago. It was a fantastic conference. I took a lot of notes during your your talk. And there were several things that came up in in that that were kind of eye opening yet obvious. It's it seems very kind of fundamental statements that you made about linking design to outcomes. There's a lot of people who talk about linking design to outcomes. You guys are actually doing it. You've actually invested in this team, this research team at HKS to do this. You also talked about design is hypothesis and not being able to truly test that until occupancy. And the funny vocabulary, the ARCA speak that, w- that we hear all the time is post-occupancy surveys. And it's like, what's that mean? Does that mean after everybody's dead? I don't, I don't even, <laughs> right? So uh, post-occupancy versus in real life, you said IRL. Um, and I, I, I actually wrote in my notes, LOL, after that, because I thought that was, that was so funny. Maybe you could just give us kind of a, an overarching statement about about where you guys are coming from as your kind of your party diagram as HKS research. Sure. I have to confess, Evan, when I got that invitation to give the keynote, I was convinced they had the wrong person. Mm. I'm like, are you sure? Because by no stretch of imagination am I a technologist. I'm very much a people science person. So it was really interesting because the prompt was so provocative uh, to really talk to a big group of super smart 
technology-driven architects and designers and software engineers about the human variable. Mm-hmm. And that's the one that we really can't figure out. And so a lot of our work and our investment in research is around this concept of design being a hypothesis, a beautiful hypothesis, a phenomenal hypothesis, but something you never really know how it works until you've lived in it, Mm -hmm. until you've occupied it, until you've used it, if you're a product designer. Like until that point, you don't know whether it worked, whether all of your design ideas once manifested in material and form actually resulted in the experience or the operations that you were really looking for. Mm -hmm. And that's been almost like an underlying theme to why we do, why do you invest in research in order to link design to outcomes in a way that design gets elevated and better outcomes are achieved. It doesn't mean necessarily that all those outcomes can be measured because we're not there yet. I think we get very distracted by data. It's so much, it's much more important to be focused on intent. What is your intent? Mm -hmm. How informed is your intent towards what outcomes? And if you have that intentionality, outcomes can then be measured that are meaningful, not that are convenient. We're kind of in this weird space as a society where we measure everything we can measure. Mm -hmm. And so there's like this data overload, but there's no delta. There is no difference we are making with that data because we are inundated with it and we're not clear about what difference do we want to make. And that is why you invest, I think you invest in research because you want to make a difference by design. You want to do health by design, you want to do work by design, you want to do leisure by design. Whatever that overall goal is, you do the research so that you can achieve it and you measure your outcomes to learn from it and to see if you can do it better the next time. For us as an industry, our Achilles heel has been the fact that we are not a prototyping culture. We can do one building one way and walk away from it and then to a new client and make the same mistakes <laughs> because it's a completely new set of users. Right. Right? So you can't have a iPhone 10 being worse than iPhone 6. It is not acceptable. You have to have new glitches, not the old glitches again. Right. <laughs> but... In the AEC industry, because we don't go back, because we have no commitment to the back end of when a building is occupied, when it's really lived, we don't have agency over that part either. We are very comfortable making new mistakes and making the old mistakes many, many times. Mm -hmm. Again, so oftentimes when we talk about research, I sometimes say that one big reason for doing research is I won't make the same mistake twice. I'll just make new ones. It's the ability to make new mistakes that investing in those occupancy outcomes gives you. So that's, that's just this overall framing of why we do it. But to your point about those occupancy outcomes, don't have to come after the building is designed. Post-occupancy has never made sense to me for the reasons you outlined. Like, what does it mean? You know, it's not after the occupant. Right. It just means it's after you move in, after it is it has some occupancy or occupants in it that you can really learn from. But you should be using occupancy data before you begin your project. 
you should be understanding your users before you begin a project. You should be really getting all of that research and insight on the front end, have very clear intent, link it to the outcomes you're interested in, understand how will I recognize those outcomes? How will I measure them? And then go back at the back end and then measure it after that building has been opened and has occupants in it. So occupancy outcomes for us is an umbrella where we do it in the beginning of a project in something we call design diagnostics. No doctor solves for your health issue without diagnosing what the problem is. We as architects and designers have to have the same rigor of going in and diagnosing what is it? Mm -hmm. What are your people doing in existing spaces that you want to carry, that you don't want to carry, that really identifies the root causes of why you ever want a new building? No one wakes up one day and saying, oh, I feel like a new building today. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's not how it happens. So we, we spend a lot of time on diagnostics in the beginning to understand what's the problem. And that's around occupancy outcomes too. We spend time identifying what should an experience strategy be? What should the environmental strategy be? What should the organizational strategy be that design has to support? And then on the back end, we commit to going back after occupancy and measuring those outcomes. And in full disclosure, that doesn't happen on every project because the architect's fee is only till the doors open. We are not held accountable for what happens in that first year, first few years after occupancy. Uh, so until our success metrics include that from the client side, systemic change cannot happen. I would love to get to that later on in the conversation when we maybe talk about where this is going, because I think it does kind of get back to business models and mindsets and things like that. I can imagine also that like what you're alluding to is that a change needs to happen as far as the way the contract is structured, the way that all of those things go down over a longer length of time. But I would mm -hmm. imagine that you guys are up against this in a very real way, which is design teams also think about projects as ending when the keys are handed over. Correct. And, and that is also a shift internally that that would have to happen along with all of this other stuff i mean we yep. think we talk about oh. these things in even bigger picture where we're talking about well maybe not bigger picture but in other ways that you know as the the model as the delivery instead of drawings yep. and for all the things that would have to change for that to happen the way that contracting would have to change insurance would have to change mm-hmm there's so many things. Standard of care would have to change. These are all linked together. Like the Venn diagram is a little bit crazy of all of the overlapping Absolutely. circles. Absolutely, yeah. And, and I'm so glad you brought that up, Evan, because uh, those kind of interdependencies are very difficult to see. Mm -hmm. That messy Venn diagram that you're describing, that is the issue, but it's difficult to see because based on what lens you're coming in from, you don't see the other side of it. The fundamental shift to delivering the model and the model being a living, breathing thing mm -hmm. that continues to collect data well after occupancy, that's the shift, right? Because you've, everyone is contributing to the same model. So even if the players leave, the model really lives. Yeah, and then yeah, once you consistent. get data, exactly, yeah. exactly. And that, as someone who learns from, our CTO and the director of our innovation labs, 
this, that is something I'm understanding that there's such huge opportunity there, mm-hmm. but the translation of that becomes difficult because of the complexity that no one has been able to solve. Mm. And so the hope is that if we can go to the very large organizational outcome, if we can make the business case to the business, then the business case of the model to the AEC industry will be much clearer. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that may be why these outcomes that we focused on are not just building outcomes, they're not building performance outcomes. They are the outcomes that are organizational and human and environmental at a much broader scale. Interesting. And, and going back to your, your idea or your, you talked about design intent and the intent being the, the important part and then measuring against the intent. Mm-hmm. Can you give some examples in, in ways that that has happened successfully on projects that you guys have been a part of? Because I think that's kind of, it kind of takes that message to get people in the right mindset that they could even participate in that kind of a, of a project. Because sure. for the most part, they're so nose to the grindstone about doing the thing they've always done, which is deliver this set of drawings so that the thing can get built or so that the agency can approve it so that it can get the permit, that it's it's very difficult to step back. And so these case studies of success or scientific method, let's call it, you know, just doing it is, is a success, whether it fails or not, is still learning. Absolutely. Yep. Can you give some examples so that those kinds of ideas can spread so that people can feel like they're like it's possible for them to. Yeah. So I'll answer that question maybe in three levels. Evan. First is the issue with just doing a POE without the intent. Mm-hmm. The biggest challenge with doing that is the risk of post-rationalization, right? Mm-hmm. It's very easy to go in and do a POE and say, yeah, that's what I wanted to happen anyways. That's great. It's all because of how we designed it. Well, if that wasn't the purpose beautiful things, unintentional things happen all the time. That's always great learning. But the risk of post-rationalization is what happens when a different team designs and then someone else goes and does a POE and you're like, yeah, that, that's what we were going for. And the things that aren't quite working, that's operational. There's incentive to, to have that skew, right? It's like, yeah, Correct. hey guys, and, we're doing a great job. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's a pat on the back. Uh, yep. So that's that's the risk. But by documenting intent, you can actually go back and measure against that and say, was this what we were really trying? What did we get? What did we not get? Now, successful case examples. One project where we know we did this quite successfully, where success metrics were identified early and then measured after occupancy was an Akron Children's Hospital, which was a lean integrated project delivery model. Mm. And so success was shared. There was a shared risk, shared return model overall. And so early on, success metrics were identified. After the project was opened, we went in and did some occupancy evaluations. We measured against those success metrics. On many of the measures, we were spot on. On some, we were behind. On some, we were ahead. And some, we didn't meet the mark. But we were able to look at it, have some very compelling statistics around how much time was saved, how much project cost was saved, how did we do on the energy outcomes, uh, and some learnings on, well, we improved patient satisfaction, but we couldn't do much for community health, which was one of the goals. 
So that example is one where the project structure was there that you had success metrics all the way through that you were thinking about. And then at the very end, you had to go back and you were asked by the client to say, okay, how did we actually do against it? So Mm. you were always paid for your time, but a little bit of profit was at risk based on how successful you were. Mm -hmm. So that's one example, right? The second example I would share is UC San Diego, the new North Torrey Pines neighborhood. That's a project where the DPP required a research component and asked for occupancy evaluations. And that project, we decided very early on that it's an academic campus. It's on campus. Why would we do the research? Why would we just do it in partnership with academia that is in campus? So we actually established what I think is the very first time um, a live-learn lab of sorts where the capital project became the avenue for research and education on campus around the built environment. So we're doing continuous studies on the human experience and the student experience and student health. We are studying some of the environmental outcomes. We are also supporting two courses that came out of it, one on neuroarchitecture and one on environmental sustainability. Mm. So that's creating an ecosystem that you're going back and measuring, but the problem or the opportunity with architecture and design is that it changes every day mm-hmm. you can't go in at what instant in time yeah. and say that's what it is it's another so failing it's changing of the poe day, right the poe is just a really short burst and it's like yep or nope and, and and then what exactly exactly so we have to think we have to change our mentality to being these living labs of sorts and have a continuous feedback loop which is what we've tried to do with the UCSD project. And then the third example I would give you is internally within HKS, we realized that it would be a little facetious of us to recommend this to everyone and not do it on our own offices. So we've kind of changed our, any new office that's constructed, we do it as a living lab and we are measuring outcomes in our employees constantly both looking at human experience outcomes, looking at environmental quality, looking at energy savings. And we create something called impact reports, which you can see if you go on the website, which is a very simple high-level summary of what impact did you have. And the reason I gave those three examples is people get overwhelmed by how much time and effort something can take. And the time and effort is proportional to what is the most strategic need. There is never any reason that I can think of to not go back and do an impact assessment. Mm. There is no reason to not go back and have a one-hour feedback conversation. But how you scale it up, how you get really, really methodical about the measures, that makes it more generalizable and more rigorous over time. And that rigor some people may have capacity for if they have trained researchers, Some people may not, but if you don't, you can collaborate with universities and get that rigor, or you can build it in. But not doing any feedback is just a cop-out. You also need to be able to have that data structured in a way that you can compare it from project Mm -hmm. to project. And so if if you don't, if you don't do that, then there's, it's, it's practically useless. Exactly. And even for simple feedback conversation, 
understanding that you systematically organize your feedback from multiple clients so that it can go into a database. I mean, that's a weakness for us is knowing how to use data and leverage it. And a lot of times we'll collect data, but there's no data infrastructure in place. Right. So you can't leverage that knowledge and it doesn't become institutional knowledge. So, so yeah, that point is well taken. How does it become institutional knowledge for you guys? Because, you know, we're talking about sharing these sharing these outcomes so that the next projects are better, so that you do learn from them, you make positive mm-hmm. changes. And by learning from your successes and your failures, like this, this is learning, like that's the definition of it, right? So I can imagine like for that team that worked on that project, there being that ability for that to move on to the next project, but it's got to get bigger than that, right? It has to translate to multiple teams in multiple offices in, you know, and then they're going to take that and they're going to modify it based on their geography or their environmental context or, you know, all of the different things that they're going to have to take into account that are going to shift the way that those solutions are implemented, the way that the outcomes come out. There's so much going on there, but, but just overall, how do you guys go about knowledge transfer and getting the buy-in around that? So that goes back to one of your earlier questions, Evan, in terms of how we structured, right? So the way we are structured in research enterprise is we have five cores, digital and material technology, climate and carbon, people and society, business and economy, and art and aesthetics. Those are five cores. Mm. Those five cores connect to multiple practices. The cores are practice agnostic. And then each practice may have a researcher within it embedded in the practice, looking at that practice's needs. Within that enterprise structure, there are three nodes that we work with. The applied research, which is agile project-based research. The deep dive research, which is institutional knowledge over time. And then the third body, the third node is coalition-based research, where HKS might partner with its nonprofit or with other academic partners to do larger coalition-based research. All of that is joined together by a global knowledge services team. And they are the ones who maintain the knowledge ecosystem. So that's kind of the broad structure within which we operate. That is not to say that we have reached, I think we have the structure in place. We have the mechanisms in place now, but the day-to-day behaviors have not yet changed. The day-to-day comfort and dependence uh, on data and understanding that data is to make a difference. It is not for a verification purpose alone. I I think that's a bigger change because even we haven't figured out how to get our POE, non-POE data in a consistent framework. Mm -hmm. So when we do occupancy evaluations, we're doing diagnostics and we're doing occupancy evaluations. They're all coming in from different teams, staying within the project. And that data infrastructure is something that we really are working on. So we are able to compare Uh, historically, all of the projects we have collected data on within the research team. But as a firm-wide mechanism, making sure that every project, as soon as a certain project type comes up, you're immediately able to see what are all the different projects we've done and how many of these projects do we actually have data on and what are we learning from that data? That's an ongoing initiative right now that our CTO is leading. Mm. But We haven't reached that level of maturity on it yet. I do believe that because we've started with thinking about the system and the structure, 
we're a little ahead of the game. That we are not just randomly collecting data, but I will be the first to admit that understanding data hygiene, data structure, mm-hmm. uh, data governance, those are things nobody teaches you in architecture school. Mm-hmm. So if you are working towards this vision where you have a model and it becomes a living model and you're going to keep collecting data from it, that literacy has to happen way before you come into practice. We need that in the core DNA of practice to be able to use research and data the way we can. Right now, much of that is just bringing that thinking to every project. And that's a very behavioral thinking for an architect to understand that you're not starting from scratch. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? You know, we talked about that on the show actually quite a bit, is that architects are very willing to start from scratch every time. And it, it's interesting because we also see that we hate we hate that about it. We hate reinventing the wheel every time, and yet we're so willing to do it over and over and over again. Oh, so true. So true. For applied research, you know, we've I've been in applied research my entire career. Mm. And I've been with uh, HKS now for over seven years. And it's always such an interesting conversation to try and figure out what does it mean? What does research mean? What is research with a big R or a small R? Like, how do you distinguish research and design? Because that's so difficult. And one of the places where we've landed is saying, okay, what we really need is rigor on that front end around the discovery and diagnostics process. On the middle, around the prototyping and testing process. And on on the back end, around the impact and outcomes. Mm -hmm. Those are three. Sometimes you make the mistake of research just bookending. So you do phenomenal discovery, then poof, it's gone. And then you come back and you verify the outcomes. That doesn't work either. Like if you want to be integrated, you have to do rigorous discovery, rigorous diagnostics. You have to have rigor in that prototyping and testing. And I'm using prototyping in the broadest sense of the word. When you're looking at plan layouts and comparing them, when you're optimizing your plans, when you're starting to do your VR simulations, when you're starting to do actual live mock-ups, you're constantly prototyping. That's what you do when you iterate in design. Right. And then every project becomes a prototype that you are testing in that evaluation phase for the next project. Mm-hmm. But that's not, that's not the way the industry works, nor have we ever had a client come to us and say, hey, we're going to hire HKS. As part of this project, we want you, I'm a healthcare client. As part of the project, I want every person working on healthcare in this firm to give me their best ideas. Right? Like, So even though you're hiring a company, Mm -hmm. you're actually hiring individual phenomenal teams within that. And you want the best talent for a particular project, but you're not putting any premium on institutional knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is also a behavior thing. So as a team, what's your incentive if you're only going to be awarded on what you do amazingly well, but not on how much better it is than anything you've done before? And then there's competing interest with inside the company around in- the incentives, which is to spend as little time as possible on the project because your fee is going to be maximized that way. There's this internal battle. I can imagine that you come up against a lot of pushback, or maybe you have historically, and again, I'm just guessing here, but 
when you're saying, you know, we want to burn some of your hours on research, project manager, <laughs> I'm I'm assuming there's put there has been pushback there. So how how have yeah, you guys overcome it, that internally, so that you you're pushing against those kind of weird incentives that that we come. I up have against? to admit, Evan, that we do come across it, and I don't think the project managers are wrong. I think the conversation has to fundamentally change to what brings most value to the project. Mm-hmm. You can't add research on without taking something off. Mm-hmm. Right? That I think there's something fundamental in our process where we are not able to recognize where is the waste and how do we get rid of the waste to add value? Because it's a fair question. I should be able to answer the question that the time spent on research in this project is going to benefit this project. The time spent on research in this project is going to benefit every other project. Right. Uh, one of the reasons our team sits in enterprise and not in mm-hmm. applied billable project work mm-hmm. is so that enterprise can take on projects where we say, this particular project can be the incubator for an idea. Mm-hmm. Right. But maybe we don't burden this project. If you're still developing our tools, if you're still developing our thinking, that shouldn't burden the project. Mm-hmm. What should be on the project is almost like Occam's razor. It's the simplest solution that you want and the simplest process that you want that gets you to the outcome. Mm. The challenge I feel, and I wish more project managers would battle this out with research teams and advisory teams and sustainability teams because they can battle it out and say, I want what's best for the project. Tell me how to get there. Mm-hmm. rather than always having more and more added on to the project that overwhelms them. Mm-hmm. You know, recently we were talking to someone who has, who works a lot with developer clients um, and they were talking about how we need to have more empathy for the client. And that's also true. Like you have to understand where the client is coming from. Then you have to be able to make your value case and you have to make it in a way that it does add value. Now there are certain things you would do that you have to get paid more for. I always believe that architects never get paid enough for the mm. thinking that they do. Mm-hmm. We don't because we solve systemic problems, but we only show the manifest in brick and mortar. So another huge incentive to measure impact that you're creating the platform, you're setting the stage for change to happen. That's what architecture does. That's what the built environment does. But we get paid only for the building. Mm-hmm. We don't get paid for the change we've instituted. Mm-hmm. Those are two or three things I think that go together, Evan. That first, you need to make the value proposition not on a building life cycle, but on a system life cycle. Mm-hmm. Second, you have to say, okay, now with the resources that I have, what can I give to this project and what needs to go away from this project to make it the best project? And third, firms have to invest in R&D that doesn't burden every single project and say, these are the things we need to do that will elevate every project going forward. Let's take a break from this conversation and welcome back the sponsor for this episode, ArcIT. I'm so excited to have them on board and I can't wait to tell you a little bit more about them. I had the pleasure of speaking with Boris and Alex over at ArcIT, and one of the threads of conversation that we had that I think we can all kind of relate to is that a lot of IT providers rely on you to be too much of an expert in this stuff, 
and they don't really understand the technology that makes your business work. And I think one thing that makes ArcIT a little bit different in that regard is that they understand the architecture and engineering space. And that's why I really felt like they're a great fit for this audience. So as business owners and architects, how often do we think about our IT provider? Typically, only when things go wrong. And for many of us, unfortunately, this happens too often, especially with the latest emphasis on remote work. I know that I've had to deal with my fair share of IT fire drills, even this morning, trying to resolve a domain name issue. Not pleasant. ArcIT, however, is a very different kind of company. They specialize in serving architecture, design, and engineering firms. And their goal is to help you use technology as a competitive advantage. This means that they understand your technology stack and they won't waste your time and money learning how your tools work within your process. Combine that with industry-leading response times, proactive remote hardware management, and solid disaster recovery and backup solutions. That's something that everybody should be thinking of, honestly. And enterprise-grade security management. And yet, above all, these are just table stakes for a solid IT company. ArcIT goes a step further. They become your strategic partner when it comes to planning, budgeting, and integrating new technology into your business processes. And that, again, this is something that I love about ArcIT is that they're being proactive. They're not waiting for the fires to come up. They're helping you plan for your future. So all of this sounds expensive, right? Nope, because ArcIT is highly specialized for our industry. Their pricing is on par or in some cases even lower than other IT providers. ArcIT is transparent and even publishes the pricing right on their website. Uh, Speaking of their website, there's also something else you should check out when you're there, and that is their Design Under Influence blog and video series. Again, adding value to IT-type solutions, I think, across industry, all good stuff. So your business deserves a competent, responsive, and proactive IT partner. Reach out to my friends at ArcIT for a free consultation. So go to GetArcIT, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com arc-like architecture in the middle, and click work with us. So thanks very much to ArcIT for sponsoring this episode of the Troxel podcast. And now let's get back to our conversation. When you guys are dealing with, with, I would imagine, clients that are more of the serial builder type, you know, it's a campus, it's, it's a larger institution, it's a little bit easier to get their partnership for the valuable outcomes that come from this work. Yeah. Um, versus a, a one-off building for for a client. So, w- when it comes to partnering with a client with an owner to have this value, this data be as valuable as possible. To have this this the outcomes be as valuable as possible. What what is that like? I mean, how in which ways have you guys been able to partner so that that data isn't only valuable to you, but it's also valuable to them, which I would I would imagine would make it an easier process to go through. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the reasons why the practice where we have the most bench depth and history of research and applied research is health mm-hmm. is because they, collect they data. are owners yeah. and operators yeah. and they are invested right. in those outcomes, right? So that's been very easy or relatively easy, not very easy, but relatively easy for us to say, here's the benefit. The data actually never belongs to us. It always belongs with the client, Right. Because it's their users, it's their people. So any applied research work, we wouldn't keep the data. Mm-hmm. It would be with the client. But it's easier for owner operators. I think for developers, rightfully so, 
it can become or be more challenging. But again, in my mind, the prototyping opportunity is probably the highest with developers mm-hmm. and highest with things like spec suites or other things where you're, you only get one opportunity and you don't know what kind of tenant you're going to get into it. Right. So you would test. I mean, you look at any of the big hospitality providers, any of the large hotel chains, they research a lot. Mm -hmm. They know exactly who their consumers are, who their customers are, and they work towards that. Uh, So I think they do that internally. I actually think that if you have a very tight budget for your single buildings, that's where your incentive is the most to do research on that typology Mm. because you have no money to waste. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you want to be very precise about what you want to do. Um, But that mindset isn't something that we've been able to adopt. We haven't been able to communicate it because the role that you get on the project is so different. It's like a simple human psychology thing that oftentimes you might say the exact same thing, but based on the door you come into the conversation from or the seat you have on the table, people hear you differently. Mm -hmm. And I think that's our problem as architects we don't have the seat at the table. We don't have the agency today that says we're actually solving systemic problems through design. We have to have that seat and we have to speak with that level of confidence saying the built environment is a strategic tool for you. Mm-hmm. It is not the outcome. And once we change that conversation, everything else will flow from that. I love that. That's fantastic. Well, maybe at this point in the conversation, we could shift to how you guys are actually doing this. I would imagine, I think you even said it in your your Tech Plus keynote, was that, you know, obviously there's a lot of technology that's driving this. There's a lot of tools. There's a lot of modeling tools. There's a lot of modeling tools that we derive data from after the fact, and there's probably less so that we're using data to drive the design, you know, which I think is is the true shift that needs to happen in mm-hmm. building information modeling, in, in quotes. Is, is using data to drive the next design. So it is kind of a cyclical chicken and the egg kind of an issue. But but then there's also just, like you said, like there's the people aspect, there's the pencil and the paper, and there's just asking the right questions. And so maybe you can kind of give us a, a big picture idea of what it, how you're actually doing this, because I imagine there's a bunch of different ways, but what what have you found is is kind of a good mix? Well, I love that you're asking me this question with the assumption that we found it. Evan. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're on our journey. We're finding our way. First of all, I think we are very lucky that we work very closely with our design leadership. So fundamentally, when you have buy-in directly from the top, like if you're working with the CEO, with the chief technology officer, with the chief design officers, with a uh, process, like, That would be my very first thing, that if you're going to do research, you have to have buy-in from that top rung of the leadership. It it creates the Um, ability for them to enable others, but also sets an expectation around that it actually happens on projects. Correct. And then the second part of it is what you said in your prompt, is starting this culture of asking questions, framing questions. And that happens on the design side, not on the research side. In the framing of a good question, saying, what is the research question you'd like to answer? Mm-hmm. That takes a lot of time. What is the opportunity for every project? What's the question you're trying to answer? And on some of those, 80% of them, you'll say, well, the insight already exists. 
And I need to just get that. I need to be informed by that insight. 10% will be this opportunity space where you say, this is new. I think we have something, an ability to do something new here. And we really want to test that. And 10%, you're not going to be able to do anything about. Mm -hmm. But the current challenge we have is because we are so busy and our projects are so big and our teams are so diverse that any extra time I have is not going in thinking. It's going in managing. Mm -hmm. So reclaiming some of that thinking time and then learning structured thinking, I think that's really important. And for us, we have noticed that even for myself, I finally come to a point where I've realized we don't want to help every project. We want to help the projects that can then help the next project, that Mm -hmm. can then help the next project. Because very quickly, you can become dilute in trying to do lots of little things in lots of different places. So almost identifying your incubator projects and using the project as a lab, but not for everything together. You can't test everything. You can't burden all the thinking in the world on one tiny project. Mm -hmm. So the scaling of that, we're kind of learning that understand which project has what opportunity and then focus a lot on distilling and distributing that. Uh, We actually have a director of integration and she's hyper-focused on saying, what are we learning as we go? Mm -hmm. And are we distilling and distributing those insights? And that could be about a small detail or it could be about a large systemic change. So as much as we want to do this, Evan, from a very data-centered perspective, the first step is the behavioral change that happens. And we need to get to that step first saying, am I asking questions? Am I making sure that I'm investigating and putting the right amount of time to investigate systematically and I'm distilling my insights and sharing them? So I have a loaded, I have a loaded question for you. Are, are, are architects good listeners? <laughs> I'm a researcher. I'm not going to generalize without good data. <laughs> good answer. I'm going there. I, I think architects really are good listeners to their clients. I think that by nature, they are makers. And so they run to the solution space before spending enough time on the problem Mm -hmm. space. Yeah. Because we can, you can see the solution. And one of the things that you have, like that slight God complex is because you can make things out of nothing. Mm -hmm. Like the talent that makes you an architect requires certain skills that sometimes may put something like empathy as a little bit of a premium Mm. that doesn't come naturally to you. That's why you need teams where you get someone saying, by nature, I'm not a good listener, but I do want to know what the client is saying. And part of that listening component, Evan, is what are they saying? And what are they really saying? Yeah, reading between those lines, right? Reading between those lines. And and that's where... I. I mean, I I do think architects listen, they just rush to a solution quickly. And that's a skill that they have. The purpose of research is to slow that down a little bit and give more time to the listening side so that you can move quicker. You know how, if you think about your alphabet, look at the letter R as a capital. Mm -hmm. And it's like a D with legs on the bottom. Mm -hmm. And that's what research is. Like, it's really just giving you legs on the design so you can run faster. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah, you can make an illustration for that and send it to me. I don't have a graphic. That's fantastic. I, I mean, architects have experience 
usually with lots and lots of clients over lots mm -hmm. and lots of buildings. And so, yeah, you're right. They are able to jump to places a lot faster. And then they have, then they have to come up with ways to lead the client to the decision they got to two weeks ago. You know, how many times do we see it where the design is, is textured and, you know, materials have been selected and then we'll turn off the textures and turn off all that stuff and then go show it to the client because we don't want to get them fixated on the color purple or this kind of material yet. We want to talk about space. So, so we have to pull it back a lot yep. of times so that yep. we can lead them in the appropriate pace to get to where we already were. And what you're saying, I think, is is that even that the distinction I make is between search and research. I think a lot of architects are really good at the Google search. And yep. a lot of times that's confirmation bias. It's like, yep, that's what I thought. Look, it's right there. It's the first hit on Google. Yep. But research has re in front of it. And it means yep. to search again and and not just assume that the way you've always done it is the right way to continue to do it. And that research is really, a lot of people don't <laughs> appreciate that those those two letters in front of that search word. You know, it's, it's so funny you say that, Evan, because my dad was a professor. And he would always say that. Really? That he would say, research is search, search, and search again. Mm. And it's the method and the rigor around that. Uh, I, I believe the confirmation bias is perhaps the most vulnerable spot that we have. Confirmation bias is what can guide sometimes our occupancy work. Mm -hmm. It's why people do POEs. The, mm -hmm. the discovery component of the code framework, that's at the very end that can have that risk. So we have that confirmation bias risk all the time. That's yeah. the biggest risk we have is, am I only seeing this? And you have that in research all the time that you start off with a hypothesis. This is going to sound very nerdy, but it's really, really important. My husband is a statistician. And the one thing I've learned from him is that when you set a hypothesis, you never set out to prove the hypothesis. You always set out to disprove the null. Mm -hmm. And that's a small distinction, but it's a vital distinction that you put a hypothesis in place, but then you go back and you really try to prove yourself wrong. If you fail to prove yourself wrong, you're probably right. Yeah, And that's how you take care of confirmation bias. So it, I think that nuance is something we just need to keep in our minds saying, am I hearing what I thought? should be said? Am I hearing what I wanted to hear? Or am I really hearing what was said? Yeah, restating the response and asking it as a question. <laughs> am, yep. Is this what I'm hearing? Yep. I think a lot of times people come to architects for answers. And so architects are very used to providing answers, and they get used to providing them quickly. And so that kind of goes back to my loaded question, which is are architects like, do they listen? Because a lot of times they're not in a position to listen. They're in a position to lead and to move things along and to get toward the finish line. And I think that that is the true mark of a leader is the ability to change their mind and to listen. And, and Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's very well said. And I couldn't agree more. Architects also tend to be really good facilitators of conversations. Mm -hmm. But that's a skill that you don't learn in school. Right. You learn design. But the amount you will rely on that very nuanced choreography of how much of a design do you share, how do you get the feedback, how you hear the feedback, how you listen to it, that's really, really important. There's an example I often share that is a hospital that we did years ago where design and research were working very 
closely together. And our biggest aha moment was around the planning of an inpatient unit where some of the field data we collected, uh, we were starting to look at how nurses walk during the day. It was a diagnostic, it was a design diagnostic we were doing and realized that the biggest inefficiency in that entire process came from how far they had to walk to get applesauce. <laughs> and it became known as the applesauce moment for the client and our team. Like it changed how we thought about how medication supplies and nutrition come together. And it changed planning principles for that team saying, oh, we just need to co-locate these. Why is nutrition so far away from medications and supplies? How come we've never thought about that before? And it changed some of our planning 101. But the insight came from something so tiny. It was how much am I walking? Why am I going to the other end of the earth to get applesauce? And the term applesauce moment became for these very tiny insights that fundamentally could change so many different plans and layouts mm-hmm. going forward, mm-hmm. right? And I raised that as an example of listening because in this case, listening was not to what the client said, but to what the client did. Mm-hmm. And we don't pay enough attention to observation, to being on site. We rely too much on user feedback. Yeah. And users tell you what they think needs to be done, right. what they think their needs are. Which is usually based on their current situation and this being the opposite of whatever their current situation is. I see that time and time again. I have this, my response is the opposite. I have this right now, my response is the opposite. That will, that'll make things better, right? (laughs) Right. Exactly. And you're you're assuming they're also asking for solutions. They're not posing problems. Mm -hmm. So you have to ask them to say, well, what's your real need? Not what you think the solution is. Mm -hmm. I want more space. Why? Mm -hmm. What do you need more space for? Be the five-year-old in the room. Why, why, why? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. And, and observe. I think that's the one piece that we don't do as an industry is immerse ourselves in the context mm-hmm. that we're designing for to understand what is not being said. Listening doesn't come from just words. Mm-hmm. Listening comes from being an observer of human life in the worlds that we are going to design for. So it's that same statement. Design as a hypothesis, lived experience is the outcome. So you have to study lived experience systematically to design for it too. Yeah, that's great. Great point. So let, let's wrap up. I, just a couple of other questions. I, I would love to kind of end on where this is all leading, or at, at, you know, at least in the short term. Where, where do you guys mm-hmm. see this going? Because who knows? This is, this is a process that's going to continue. The continuum is long, right? So how has this led to changes in the, the structure of how you set up these agreements, these contracts, the business over the long term to lengthen the level of interaction possibility with clients and owners and the security and privacy of that data that's collected via occupants. I, I, you know, there's a lot there. We don't have to get into all of it. But, but where is this leading based on some of the work that you guys have been, have been doing? Evan, I feel like that's a question that is very nuanced. I don't have a single clean answer for you. One thing that I'm seeing is in the regular project, in the typical project where your deliverable really is that set of drawings, we are starting to see much more on the front end where we get paid for advisory and research services because clients want confidence in the decisions that they're making. Mm -hmm. 
So that's a very small change that we start seeing that we're, we're, we're doing more on the front end than we did before. On the back end, we've started putting in on few key owner operator clients like health systems or education systems, putting an occupancy evaluation component to the work in the base services as well. So trying to make some room for that thing. This is the base services component of it. If you want to go deeper, here's an ad service component that you can choose to get into and you can have more debt. So that's one component. The second one is performance-based contracts. So the lean IPD kind of things where you have a tri-party contract with the owner and the contractor and the architecture firms, incentivize success, that's easier to get. The larger shift where everybody is invested in that cohesive model where you're inputting into that as you go and you are sharing some agency over that outcome on the back end after occupancy, we haven't seen a lot on that yet. Mm-hmm. But I 100% agree that that's where we are moving. And we are also moving to a point where we have to work in these well-formed coalitions where architecture firms, engineering firms, manufacturing firms have to come together to deliver more holistic solutions because currently it's too divided. It's happening in too many silos and there's no incentive to share innovation. Mm-hmm. Right? So until that coalition structure comes in place, we're at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do believe that once clients start asking for it, I, I feel as an industry, we can only go this far by talking to each other. It's always frustrating. Like I see so many young designers come out of school with phenomenal parametric tools and parametric skills, and they're always amazed at how slow our industry is to change. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is that the motivations have not been strong in terms of what we are being asked for mm-hmm. from the client. Mm-hmm. Okay? So that's the conversation that needs to change, that we have to make the value proposition evident to the end end user. Not even the client, but the client's end user. The client's clients, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, and and that's, that's, I think, the shift that we're starting to see. Like, even in the last five years, Evan, we have seen more projects come up that are asking for more of that thinking on the front end. Demanding. More it. metrics. Yep. Uh, more building simulations for sure. Mm-hmm. So that shift is coming. The accountability shift has come. The contractual shift, the shift in how you do these really clean multi-party contracts that hasn't uh, happened but one example i'll share and you might know this already is the la stadium mm-hmm. project that heath may and the line team worked on mm-hmm. that's a great example of a project where zanor and hks got together and they did create a digital model they even got a patent for it and they never submitted drawings they submitted a digital seal. Mm-hmm. So if you think about every project being an opportunity for this kind of disruption, it's much easier. We can't change the world, but we can change one component of the world, one project at a time. And meanwhile, the powers that be have to figure out a better contractual structure to incentivize it in a more systemic way. Yeah. And I think it's key to not get distracted along the way. You know, one of the 
I think, bigger disappointments of building information modeling is because it can hold data, then people just pump it full of useless data, garbage in, garbage yeah. out. And and with what you're talking about and kind of taking it back to the basics of design intent realized and and actually testing that, whether it was realized or not, if not, why not? And what are some yeah. additional outcomes that you never foresaw? You know, taking it back to kind of those those basics and really guiding everybody along the way so that you don't get distracted is really important along the way because it is easy. Like it's it's squirrel mentality, right? <laughs> you're, you're going and then it's like shiny thing over here, exciting squirrel. I'm going to go look at that. And <laughs> and and it happens a lot. Right. And I'm, I'm sure you guys see it all the time. I, it's I think the squirrel mentality is the architectural business model. <laughs> right you, you can't judge the squirrel mentality if literally what you're doing i mean think about this right a big technology firm to develop a single app or an upgrade on an app has hundreds of people working on it right here you're creating a complex building with so many complex interdependent systems and you might have a team of 10 right working on it right like there's something so obviously you're a squirrel because you're not being asked to design something and given the time to do it. And you're not being told, say, what you design, that's a prototype. Mm -hmm. And everything we do from this point onwards, we'll keep building on that. No, we call them design solutions. We don't call them, <laughs> right? It's programmed right. into us from the earliest, earliest days. Right. Yeah. So, you know, like don't judge the squirrels because like you, you're giving squirrel feed. Right. And And I think that, that is part of what the biggest challenge for us is saying you have to move in an agile way and you have to keep building the foundation mm -hmm. simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So firms have to have the challenge of saying, yes, project response is probably going to remain squirrely. Mm -hmm. But every time you're trying to iterate to a point where saying, okay, are we getting closer? Whereas you need the mothership to go slow and steady towards right. more systemic outcomes. And eventually the two will meet, Yeah, but not anytime soon. Yeah. You've got to kind of level out those, the bumpy turbulence that happens along the way with that big ship, exactly. right? Keep it, keep it calm. Well, I can't, can't really think of a better place to end it. That, that was a pretty positive way to, and, and I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It's been fantastic. Likewise, I wanted to give you the, the invitation just to share where people can follow along with yeah. the work that you guys are doing. So I would give you that opportunity now. Two places. I think the one thing that I didn't talk about, Evan, was uh, the role that I also have teaching at the University of Michigan. Mm -hmm. And the reason I mentioned that is this, Role in research as a pracademic is very important. The gap between practice and academia keeps growing. And the mm. talent that comes out of academia that is super, super strong, we almost take away, we beat out those ideas in practice. And then the ability to solve for practice is not baked into academia. So um I, I wanted to mention that, that when you talk about where do we see this going, mm -hmm. I do see more academics building these bridges that we have this mentality that everything we need to do has to be within a single firm. It doesn't. Right. right? It really doesn't. We can't keep loading single projects, single firms. We have to build systems 
where we say if we all input into yes. the system, we all benefit. Absolutely. And, and I mean, just to reinforce that, every firm is attempting, well, I won't say every firm, but let's just call it the large firms in the AIA are all attempting to do a very similar thing and reinventing and, and not sharing because that's that's hard work. It's to coordinate all of that on top of everything that you're doing on a day-to-day basis on the project level. Yeah, it, 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 and there's no reason to. There, there is no reason to to do that. Like we, we don't have to compete on the things that are not our differentiators. Yeah, knowledge is not our differentiator. Right. Ability to use it is. It so I think that's a really important. That's a key point that I wanted to make. And then to where you can get to these insights, almost everything is available on our website. Mm-hmm. If you look for the research tab, and we also support a nonprofit which is truly towards building those coalitions. That's the mission of the nonprofit is to build coalitions around research evaluation and design. You can go on the cadreresearch.org website to see some of that work. So I would invite every one of your listeners to A, think of HKS as a design research partner. We have zero interest in holding knowledge that does not need to be hoarded. I think all knowledge is the one thing that becomes more powerful when shared. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so we are always looking for partners. Also to look at this coalition model and see if there are things that we could work on together, it would make for a happier world. Absolutely. I'm so happy to hear that as well, that you guys are not the the hoarders that I thought you were. I'm just just kidding. No, it's fantastic. I mean, I I wish more firms would see it that way, that this is, it's like technology. The technology itself is not the differentiator either. Everybody's using the same technology. Everybody's reinventing the same scripts over and over and over again to do the same things. And they all sit in a directory somewhere on the server and they're just dying there instead of being shared for a more useful, professional, big picture in a big picture way. And I love that you guys are approaching knowledge in the same way. Well, there's only this much we can do by ourselves. Evan. So yeah. it just makes, there's a selfish interest here is that we all want to do more and we have to realize we can't do it by ourselves. It doesn't make, it doesn't make any kind of sense. We're all pieces of the puzzle, right? And we all we have are, to work together and, and fit together. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll include links to everything that you've mentioned in the show notes so that people don't have to search for them on their own. They can just click the link. And I, I really appreciate your generosity and your time today. It's been a, a pleasure speaking with you. This was a phenomenal conversation, Evan. And thank you for what you're doing because it, technology is the pathway to the solution. And these kind of conversations are so important. Mm-hmm. I hope the next time around I can interview you. Okay. <laughs> I'll take you up on. <laughs> I can learn a little bit from the from the other side. That'd be great. All right. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate it, and I'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Troxel Podcast, and once again, I would like to thank Arc IT for sponsoring this episode. Visit their website at getarcit. That's g e t a r c h i t dot com. This show is part of the Gabled Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gabledmedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. 
You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon. <laughs>